morning. If you want to take your Bibles, go ahead and go to Luke chapter 19. That's where we'll be this morning. As I said, we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 19. We're actually going to, if if you've been here very long, you you know that I like to take small passages and preach on them, but that's not what we're going to do this morning. Historically, in the church, in the tradition of church, uh, today is, is Palm Sunday, as Pastor Dave said, and what would normally happen uh, not too long ago, some churches still do this, uh, I didn't have you guys do this this morning, they would actually like go outside somewhere and have a procession inside together, and then they would get in here, and then the service would then lead them all the way to the death of Christ. Because it's, it is difficult, I, I looked at that this week and I was thankful to see that, because it's difficult this time of year to figure out what you're going to preach on. You say, this should be the easiest time of year. Well, really, Palm Sunday, if you just preach on the triumphal entry, you have that. And then on Easter, you should preach on the resurrection. And there's a problem. You miss the crucifixion if you do that. And it's, it's hard to stick with that. But uh, what we see is, historically, like I said, the church spends today focusing from Jesus walking into Jerusalem all the way till Jesus dying on the cross. And so I want us to do that uh, this morning the best that we possibly can. And we're going to do it from the account that Luke gives us, as I said, starting in Luke 19. And I hope that that will lead us to our time for Lord's Supper this morning that we'll be observing together. So in Luke 19, beginning in verse 28, I want to read through verse 40. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What I I think we're going to see this morning is kind of a a five-act scenes, I guess, that unfold. And this would be the first act that we see, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Jesus coming into town, finally receiving the praises that he has been due. You see, for a long time in Jesus' life, he was very reluctant to let his ministry begin. If you remember uh, when he was with his mother at that wedding, you remember his mother was asking him to perform some sort of miracle or to do something. And you remember what his response was to his mom? He said, it's not, it's not time yet. You know, it's not, it's not time yet. What are, you, what are you doing? No, and it almost seems in Jesus' life that he was, it can come across as he was being reluctant to start his ministry that he came for, which that wasn't true. He was waiting for the right time when it had been told of him that that would happen. So it's interesting how he tells her, my time hadn't yet come. And throughout his ministry, as we look at Jesus' ministry, those three short years that he had in ministry, uh, he would tell people often, he would heal them, he would do something for them. And what would he always say? Don't tell anybody. Do not tell anybody what has happened here. Don't tell them who I am or Whatever it might be, he, he always seems to be saying this. And again, this was because the time had not yet for what was planned in eternity to take place. It wasn't time yet. But what we see in this moment here in Luke chapter 19, as Jesus heads into Jerusalem, we see the moment. We see the coronation of the king happening and taking place. Now at this moment is the time. Now, as we know, we get to look from history, see it as history past. We know that Jesus wasn't riding into town to claim his kingdom, was he? He wasn't going to sit on a throne, which is what the people had hoped for. It's probably what some of the people there thought was about to happen or to take place. No, 
What Jesus was doing is he was actually taking his journey to the cross. He was going to his death. And so here the people line the streets praising him as king, but as we know, not fully understanding what actually is about to unfold in the week ahead. Not exactly what they hope to see is going to happen. They want to see a king on the throne and maybe Rome being getting rid of and all of this, but no, that's not what's going to take place here. What's going to happen is something very, very different. You see, this morning, we come to praise the king. At least that's, I hope, why you came this morning. We come together together to worship Jesus. And we do that knowing exactly what happened because, as I said, we have the privilege of having God's word and being able to look back. And this is why we praise him, right? We, we praise him because of what he has done. And hopefully, that causes us to praise him well. We want to do that. We want to, we want to honor him. These people wanted to honor Jesus by praising him as he's coming into the town because some of them had believed he was the king. He was the king that was going to take place. Well, we come knowing he is the king. His kingdom wasn't ushered in uh, maybe exactly how these people thought, but we know where it's going. Right? We know the victory was won, as we just have been singing about a moment ago. And so as we gather together, that's why we want to praise him well, and we want to make sure that we praise him alone. Nobody else. I think that's something we all have to look at in our heart, is why do we gather here this morning to worship? Why are you here? Why am I here? I don't need to be here for any other reason than to worship my king. There's other benefits with that. God has placed us together in a local church community, and that is great, and we have relationships, and that is, that is good. But we gather together in this local community to worship our king, to praise him, just as these people were doing on the street that day. Now, as we continue on in this last week, of Jesus' life on this earth before his crucifixion. We see that Jesus would return uh, to Bethany multiple times as the week goes on. It seems like this would happen in the evening. This is where Lazarus and his sisters were and lived, and we know that he had a close relationship with them. But the scriptures tell us that he often would go back during that week at night. But we also see in Luke 21, verses 1 through 38, another act start. I would call this act 2 is happening here. Jesus is, taking, is teaching often in the temple. Uh, you might remember the story of the widow and the two coins. Remember when Jesus would see that lady go and give her offering, and it was just, just two coins, nothing. I mean, just kind of foolish, some would say. He would see somebody else giving an extravagant amount, but he would ask, who, you know, who is giving more here? And it was her because she was sacrificing she was sacrificing everything she had to give here. And so Jesus would teach in this way in the temple oftentimes. It's, it's here where he would foretell of the destruction of the temple that would take place in, in Jerusalem. And so this is what we see in Acts 2, or in the, in the second act that I'm talking about here. And how this act ends is, is pretty sad. It's in Luke 22, verses 1 through 6. And it is here where you see they decide to plot to kill Jesus. Because of his teachings, because of what's been taking place. In Luke 22, Passover is drawing near and the chief priests and the scribes know that they need to take action soon. So sadly what happens is they get in touch with one of Jesus' own. They get in touch with Judas. And he agrees to turn Jesus over to them. The scripture, if you read it, I don't have time to read the exact passage this morning, but it actually says that Satan entered Judas. Oh. I hope it never says that of me or of you. But Satan enters Judas. What a big deal to have one of your own <clears throat> turn their back on you. I'm guessing you've probably experienced this in your life in some way, shape, or form. Somebody you trusted, somebody you loved, somebody you cared about, somebody who you thought was a friend or whatever it might be. And somehow they turn their back on you, whatever it might have been. But the fact that you sit here and leave, live and breathe today means they didn't kill you. They didn't turn their back on you to turn you over, to be arrested and crucified. This is one of the 12 that Jesus had chosen in his very short ministry. 
his very short time on this earth, one of those 12 would be the one who would turn him over. Well, as you continue on in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 13, and this is where that third act would begin, we see the Passover start to take place. Jesus instructs Peter and John to get things prepared for the group. He tells them a man carrying water is going to lead you to a house. This house is going to have a large upper room, and it is there that we will have Passover together. Now, I want you to do your best to try to get your mind on the situation. You have the triumphal entry. You have teachings. And now Jesus knows that the time has come that very soon, this coming night, is when it's all going to start to take place. When he's going to be arrested, when he's going to be tried, and when he's going to be crucified. Jesus knows exactly what he's walking into. And so he instructs these disciples, let's go and let's celebrate Passover together. And so in this place that he instructs them to go, Jesus knows is the very last night and place that he will spend with his disciples that he loves. Again, he he knows all this is happening. He knows all this is taking place. And what he wants to do is he wants to have one last meal with his disciples. And it's a meal that's very important to him. Look in Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. I'll read through verse 23. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes and has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. I find it interesting that the way that this passage starts out is Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. As I mentioned, Jesus knew what was coming. Yet knowing what was coming, Jesus would still say, I have this desire to eat with you this meal. Now, if it was me, this would be the last meal I was looking forward to in all of my life. I would have looked more forward to going to the wedding with my mom and having a meal there. But no... He says, it is this meal that I have so earnestly desired to have with you. And the question is kind of why? Why why would he say something like this? Well, in 1 Peter 1, verse 20, Peter tells us, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Now again, it's hard to put ourselves in this situation. But before anything was ever created, think about that. Before anything was ever created, before God ever said, let there be, before that ever happened, this moment was planned for Jesus. And Jesus knew about it. Because Jesus is not created. He always was, always will be. And so this exact moment of when he would sit down with his disciples of whom he loved and would break bread with them, this was the moment that had been waited for for eternity, forever. Some of you right now just got back from vacation this week with spring break. You're already looking forward to the next one. Eagerly. You eagerly are already counting down the days until you get to go again. Now think about that anticipation Think about this anticipation. Before the foundations of the world, this was planned. It is the moment of redemption taking place for mankind as the, as the world eagerly just groans waiting. This is the moment when Christ is coming to redeem mankind through his blood. And what he's doing at this moment with his disciples in this upper room is he's saying he is establishing a new covenant with them. 
And this new covenant that he's establishing with them is a covenant of grace that is purchased and fulfilled by his life, his blood, his death, and his resurrection. And it is his resurrection that makes it a covenant that lasts forever. That's why Pastor Spencer read what he read this morning in Hebrews. The fact that he rose again seals that covenant and makes that covenant have worth. Jesus at this moment knows it's an important moment. And look at what he must deal with next. Right? He, he, he said, I've been eagerly waiting for this moment with my disciples. I've been looking forward to this day. And look what he has to deal with. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? Can you imagine? So we, we got to go on vacation this week. That's why it was on my mind. And we... My wife and I, we've always wanted to take our kids over to Boston to see all the historical stuff. We went once, and we just really enjoyed it. We wanted them to see it. We get there, and they're like, so what do we do, just look at it? <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. I mean, we're not going to shoot anybody like they did in the Revolutionary War. We don't do anything like that. We just look at it. Yeah, where are we going to go next? To something else to look at. It was kind of like, Really? We just spent all this time, all this money, vacation days. We think you guys are going to be pumped about it. And what we get is, so I just look at it. Jesus, from the foundations of the world, had been looking forward to this meal with his disciples. To where he could initiate with them the new covenant that was about to take place. The covenant of grace. He's about to go and lay his life down for mankind. His, his father's wrath is going to be poured out on him. And when he tells them that he wants to establish this new supper with them, the response that we get after is a dispute arises of who is the greatest. How heartbreaking. I don't know about you, but for me at that moment it's when I quit. It's enough that Judas already dipped his hand in the same cup as me and he's going to go betray me. If that's not hard enough, the ones who are sticking around are arguing about which one is the best. Now, see, we look at them and we would really get frustrated at them and say, how dumb are you? But i got to be honest with you. When I get together with groups of pastors, you want to know what they talk about? They do it very subtly, but whose church is the best? That's what they talk about. What are your numbers like? How many of you baptized? What's your guys' offering pulling in? How's it been since COVID? What does this look like? And it's all stuff to measure up. That's what it is. It's questions to measure up. Who's the greatest in the county? Who's the greatest in the state? This stuff still happens. It happens all the time. Jesus is about to lay his life down. And what are his disciples doing? They're disputing. Let's see how it goes. It says, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. All of history coming down to this moment. And these guys are focused on their position in history. All the lessons that Jesus had taught them, it seems, are gone. They want to know who's going to be the best. It makes you wonder if Jesus isn't very good at interviewing people. Don't it? These are the 12. These are the 12. I mean, throughout all of history... Throughout all of mankind, these are the 12 that you're going to surround yourself with? A traitor? A bunch of fools? A bunch of wimps? This is who you want. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was reading this the past couple weeks, it actually gives me some hope. Because these are the 12 Jesus chose. And I'm not much better than any of them. 
But he chose them for some of the greatest work in the history of mankind. Because after Jesus would leave and ascend, it was these 12 who would go and start the churches. It was on their shoulders that he was going to put a lot of work, and it's these 12 that he chose. The 12 that look so foolish and so ridiculous, but God would use them mightily so that we could even still be here today to know the gospel. That should give you hope this morning. No matter how foolish you feel, no matter how silly you feel, no matter how hopeless you feel, how often you feel you turn your back on God instead of running towards him, no matter how many times you think you failed him because you didn't share the gospel with somebody when you felt you had the chance, and those are the things that you think about so often, I want you to think of these 12. God chose them, just like God chose you, loved you, and cared for you, and has saved you. These men give us hope in their foolishness because we find ourselves in that foolish state so often. Well, this act continues. Let's look at verse 31. Peter needed to speak up, doesn't he? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, let's stop there. If Jesus would just say that, it'd be like, great, everything's going to be good. Jesus Christ himself prayed for me that I would not fail. Therefore, I could take the stamp of saying, I will not fail, right? I mean, that's what we would say. But look at Jesus's, look at Jesus's next line. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Wait, you prayed for me not to fail, but you're telling me I'm going to fail. When I've turned back from my failure, strengthen my brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Again, we see our hope in Peter as well, don't we? Jesus says he's going to turn for him, but he will come back. And when he does, he must strengthen his brothers. Notice, notice how Jesus had a purpose for Peter even knowing that he would fail miserably at first. Peter tried to step up and say, I would go to prison with you, I would die for you, and Jesus knew better than that. Jesus says, Peter, that's not going to happen. You're going to deny me today. But listen, when you come back, after you go do your little thing, when you come back, this is what I need you to do. I need you to be a leader amongst these 12. I need you to strengthen your brothers. I need you to be the encourager. Now listen, that makes no sense. That makes absolutely no sense in the world to take the one who's the weakest in the group. He's going to run. A little girl is going to question him and he's going to say no and get all angry and scared of the little girl. He's going to turn his back. This is the one that Jesus has chosen to say, I need you to be the strong one. I need you to be there for your brothers. I need you to come back. When you come back, listen, you're going to sin, you're going to fall. But when you come back, I need you to strengthen your brothers. I need you to be there for them. Even in his worst moment, Jesus still has a hold of Peter. As as Peter is cursing Jesus' name, Jesus still loves Peter. And he has a plan for Peter. And he wants to assure Peter of this moment. I wonder what it would be like in Peter's life if it would have all been different if Jesus would have never told him this. How many people do you know who have fallen from the Lord a little bit and because of that, they don't come back? They're too ashamed. They're too broken. They feel too unworthy. And so they don't come back. Satan uses that in their life to keep them away. I wonder if that would have been what happened to Peter. Or if after that rooster crowed, after he realized what he'd done and he goes away, if he remembered these words of Jesus, Peter, remember this, when you come back, I need you to strengthen your brothers. It's amazing how much the Lord loves us, that even in our worst moments, he still holds us and cares for us. And even beyond that, has a plan for us in his kingdom. Well, as we continue on to the next act, this would be the fourth one. We get to the garden scene. So Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples. They have this supper together. It says they sing together, but then they head off to a garden called Gethsemane. And it is in this garden where we see the burden of Jesus. We see the burden that he has carried all this time. The Bible tells us that he's praying to the Father. He's seeking the Father's face. And he's actually sweating drops of blood. He's in such agony at this moment. 
And in Luke's gospel, it tells us that an angel was sent to him to minister to him and to strengthen him in this moment. He goes to the disciples. He's encouraging his disciples to pray, but they just seem to be too tired. They keep falling asleep. And Jesus keeps telling them, you need to pray so that you can avoid temptation. Be praying these things, but they just couldn't. We see the weakness in them. And so Jesus essentially finds himself alone in the garden, spending time with his father in great agony over what's about to take place. As we continue on, we see the arrest happen. We know Satan entered Judas. Judas now is in full swing of betraying Jesus. He gets the chiefs and the scribes. He brings them to Jesus in the garden, and he does this away from the crowds, away from all the people, and they come to arrest him. And at this point, his disciples actually stand up for him, we see in Luke. They want to fight. They act as if they're going to fight. In fact, Peter does fight a little bit, cuts somebody's ear off. But Jesus puts the ear back on, rebukes Peter, and tells them this is not the time to fight. That's not what's happening. And it's amazing to see how Jesus freely goes with the people arresting him. Jesus freely goes to confront them, and then he freely walks away with them, even telling them, why do you come with all these people? You didn't need all these people. Why? Because this was determined before the foundations of the world to happen and take place. Jesus' whole life was going to this moment, and he wasn't going to turn from it. He was walking to it. And so the arrest happens, and they take him to trial. And this is the last act, the trials that take place. In Luke 22, towards the end, we see the trial before the council. Jesus is taken to the chief priests. He's taken to the scribes to be questioned and tried. And what they want is they want Jesus to admit that he is the Christ, the Son of God. They want him to say that. And so they question him with this. And his response to them is, you say that I am. You are saying that I am he. And this was enough for them. This was blasphemy. This was all they needed to determine that he deserved death. So he stands before this group of Israelites, of Jews, the ones he's came for, and they turn him away, and they want to see him die. And so they take him to Pilate. This is how much they hate him. They hate him so much that they would go to the Roman government to deal with it. The Jews hated the Gentiles. But they would take him to the Gentiles to see what they would do. So the chief priests, knowing that they need Roman government's approval to have Jesus killed, they go to Pilate. They get Jesus in there with Pilate. Pilate questions Jesus, and we know that he finds no fault in him. He can't find anything wrong with him. And so he, he, he knows that Herod is in town. He knows that Jesus is under Herod's jurisdiction. So he sends him to Herod says, let's see what Herod will do. And so in Luke 23, verse 6 through 16, it's Jesus before Herod. And what Herod does is Herod treats Jesus almost like a court jester. He comes before Herod, and Herod is thinking, you're going to do something for me. You're going to heal somebody. Some miracle is going to happen or take place. I've been hearing about this guy, and Jesus isn't going to do it. And so Herod doesn't like this, and so the chief priests and the scribes are urging Herod all this time to allow Jesus to be killed. But even Herod, in his frustration with Jesus, cannot find a reason to kill him. In fact, he doesn't find anything special about Jesus at all. And so what Herod does is Herod has his men mock Jesus. They dress him up in very nice clothing, beautiful, elegant clothing, and they mock him. Oh yeah, you're a king. There's nothing special about you. Get out of here. Move on. And so they send him back to Pilate. As we continue on in Luke 23, Jesus returns to Pilate. And here in front of Pilate again, Jesus is still found innocent of all the charges. Yet the chief priests want Jesus dead so much that they'd rather have a murderer released, Barabbas, than Jesus. And so Pilate gives in to this. He releases Jesus to be crucified. Again, isn't it interesting how all of this was planned before the foundations of the world? But I want you to notice, all of this plays out in real time. It plays out with real people making their own decisions. 
Pilate was making his own decisions. Herod was making his own decisions. The chief priests and the scribes and the leaders, all their own decisions. Judas made his own decisions. Peter was making his own decisions all along. But this had been planned forever. This is what God had planned to be done. We see him working throughout all this. This is hard for us, I think, to grasp sometimes. Of how Jesus can plan all of this out, yet, yet still us making our decisions freely and openly. But this is how big and how great our God is. How it all works together. When Satan himself is trying to stop and he's trying to ruin everything. He enters into Judas. Guess what? That was part of God's plan. Judas betrays part of God's plan. Peter to deny part of God's plan. What Satan was doing all this time is he was thinking, if I can just kill him, it's over. If I can just kill the Christ, then this is no more. I've won. The victory is mine. And so this is Satan's plan all along. <laughs> Yet it does not impact God's plan one, one iota because it's God's plan. It's God's plan that all of this is going to take place. And that's what leads us to Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourselves. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So they lead Jesus away. They head to Golgotha, the place that he was going to be killed. And in this scene, we definitely see the hatred that they had for Jesus. Now, the Romans were just doing their job. This is what they were trained to do, was to execute and to kill, and they were good at it. The rulers and the chief priests hated Jesus, and all they wanted to see was him to hurt and to die, and they wanted it to be done embarrassingly. Why? So that they could say, look, there's no way this is the Christ. God wouldn't let his son go through this. They mock him. And they mock him, why? So that others will laugh at him. They don't just want him dead, they want him to be seen as a fool. It's not enough just for him to die. And all this time, these chiefs and these scribes, I want you to remember, they feel and they know that they are doing the will of God. That's what they're doing. They're doing this very zealously. They're doing this as worship. They're doing this as honor to God. That is what they believe is happening here. They are doing the right thing they believe. Yet all the while, they're actually killing the son of the God that they worship. Now, it's interesting that Jesus is not alone in the crucifixion. The Bible tells us that they place him in the middle of two thieves. One of the thieves makes a last-ditch effort, asking Jesus to save their lives if he's truly the Christ. And this man is looking for some relief, isn't he? No doubt he's agonizing at this point, and he's saying, if you are the Christ, why don't you get us out of here? Zap us up, beam us somewhere, whatever it takes. Can you not get us out of here? Can you not help me from my physical pain that I'm going through right now? And this is the focus of that man. That man is focused on the pains of this world, which I probably would be at that moment too, if I'm being honest with you. But somehow, the Bible tells us the other guy, and I don't know how all this happens, 
But somehow the other guy recognizes Christ's innocence and he sees his own guilt. And it's because of this, he actually approaches Jesus very differently. Because both of them ask something of Jesus. The one says, get me down from here. Well, the other one asks Jesus, will you remember me? You see, that guy, for some reason, and I don't know why, he's not focused on the things of this world at that moment. He's focused on what's going to happen when he dies. He's focused on what happens next. And he asked Jesus in that moment, will you remember me in your kingdom? And while Jesus is hanging there on the cross, while he is bearing the wrath of God his Father, he shows such great mercy to this man next to him. And he says to him, you'll be with me today in paradise. I was listening to a, a sermon from Alistair Begg a couple weeks ago. He was talking about this moment. And I, ha I haven't stopped thinking about what he said. He said, what must have this conversation have been like after this thief was in paradise? You wonder if the theology nerds didn't run up to him and say, what's justification? What is atonement? <laughs> the guy just looks at him like, I don't know. Well, what'd you do with your life? I was, I, I was a thief and I died on a cross. That, that was my life. Well, then why in the world are you here? What would his answer have been? It wouldn't have been, well, you know, I was baptized. It wouldn't have been, you know, when I was 12, I got saved. It wouldn't have been, hey, all of a sudden it clicked for me and God is Trinity. None of that stuff would have been his answer. He could have never answered that. He would have had one simple answer to all of these, all these questions. He would have said, the guy in the middle, the guy in the middle said I'd be here with him. Here I am. I mean, it really makes no sense. It really doesn't add up. But yet God in his great mercy had a plan before the foundations of the world that that man would be crucified right next to Jesus. And for some reason, again, I don't know why he would ask that question, but he says, would you remember me? What made him ask that question? The other guy had the right question. Can you get us down? He says, will you remember me? And Jesus in his most agonizing state would say, yeah, I'll remember you. So we see later, in verses 44 through 49, we see the end of Act 5 as Jesus dies. So it was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw that what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Darkness covers the land. The veil of the temple is torn in two, Matthew would say, from top to bottom. Jesus would utter the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just like that, it's over. Just like that, the Christ is dead at the hands of the leaders of Israel, yet crucified by Gentiles. Jesus hangs there alone as almost all of his followers, what did it say, watched from a distance. Not there by him, but from a distance they stand watching all of this happen. Can you imagine that moment in heaven? For all of eternity, this moment was planned. And at that second, it happened. At that very second, Jesus dies. And it's over. Yet, there is no injustice in this world as great as what happened at that second. The one who truly was innocent was killed. Very undeserving. You know, we say that stuff a lot nowadays. We say injustice and all these things. It's, it's thrown around all over the place. 
This was injustice. He didn't deserve anything. He deserved to be paraded in town as a king and set on the throne and hailed and praised forever. Yet what he got was death. Yet the way that God has planned it before the foundations of the world, and we all need to know this, it is through this injustice where God gives us hope and justice. It is through the greatest act of death that we've ever seen that God has provided for us life and hope and peace and joy. We're so far removed from this. I I know, I get it. But the death of Jesus was not pretty. The death of Jesus was horrifying. Can you imagine the middle of the day, it gets black. The man is beaten and just torn to shreds. He hangs there and people mock him and they're dividing his clothing. That scene is so horrific and yet this is what we come this morning and gather together to thank God for. A scene that is so heinous and vile. But it's the only thing that gives us hope in life. This morning you might be looking for hope. You might be looking for life, peace, and a lot of different things. It can't be found in the things of this world. Listen, you might be church hopping right now. Let me tell you this. You cannot find hope and peace from some pastor. We don't have it. I can't give it to you. Pastors actually are very good at giving you more burdens. I can give you work to do if you want work to do. I cannot give you peace. I cannot give you hope. There's people who are looking for hope and peace through our political system. You should have learned by now. It's not there. You're looking for hope and peace through your family, through a marriage, or through kids, or whatever it might be. I can promise you this. You will not find it there. Your kids will disappoint you. Your kids will fail you because they're sinners. Your wife or your husband is going to fail you at times. It's going to be rocky. You cannot find true hope, true life, and true peace in that. Or maybe you're trying to find hope and peace in what I saw all over the East Coast as I traveled this week. Hope and peace in self. Every church I came up to was a fallen bad church. Beautiful buildings. Gorgeous. I was telling Pastor Spencer, I would think those who came over on the Mayflower would be heartbroken to see their buildings being used as what they're used for now. But that's where people are trying to find peace. Me and Amanda came across a church. It was called a uh, Unitarian Universalist Meeting Place. So Unitarian, they believe in one God. Universalist, but we're all good. Don't really have to worry about God. We can all just meet here together and talk about I don't know what. Beautiful church. It was a beautiful church. No hope and peace there because they're worshiping themselves. The only hope that we have is to look at that guy at the middle, the one beaten, the one bruised, the one who in history, this happened in reality, breathed his last breath and died. And he did that so that you didn't have to do that. He did that for your sin. He did that to cover your shame and to cover your guilt. That's why he did that, was for you. So that you, before the foundations of the world, could be a part of his family. Could be a part of his kingdom. Even for those disciples who would turn their back. Peter, who he knew would turn away. Doing this for you. I must suffer. Peter, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. This morning, I would beg and plead of you, don't look for hope, don't look for peace in any other place in this world than at Calvary. And the only reason Calvary means anything, and I already mentioned this once, is because in in a week, we're going to celebrate the fact that the grave couldn't hold him because that would have been unjust. You see, the grave couldn't hold him. While Satan says, yes, victory is mine, no, you just messed up. 
you just messed up. You made a bad decision because you just proved that he is the Christ because he has to rise again. There's no sin. Sin is what equals death. There's no sin in his life. Therefore, he can't stay dead. It can't happen. And it is through his resurrection, through his life, his burial, his death, his resurrection, that you and I have life this morning. And the reason that Jesus sat down with his disciples and he said, I've so eagerly desired to have this meal with you was because Jesus knew again before the foundations of the world that his people would continue to celebrate this supper together to remember all of what we just talked about. In a little bit, our men are going to come and hand these out and you're going to take this bread and you're going to take this juice. And we do this because this, this bread represents his body that hung on that cross, that was beaten, that was mocked, that was ridiculed, should have been our body. But we take of this knowing he did it for me in my place. Then we'll peel this little thing open and it'll pop and make weird noises in here and we'll drink this juice. And Jesus had established this in that upper room right before he would go to be killed. Why? So that we could remember so that we could remember who it is we serve and what he has done for us. I hope that you take that seriously. That's why we always say when we do Lord's Supper, this isn't for you if you're not a Christian. If you haven't been saved by God's grace, we ask that you wouldn't partake of this this morning because it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to you. It's just a cracker, it's just juice. But for those of us here who have been saved by God's grace, We've been baptized. We partake of this knowing what it represents. Thanking God for the grace that he has given us through the blood of Christ. Thanking God that we serve the king who is alive. The grave couldn't hold him. And we look forward to the day when he will come again and so that we don't have to experience suffering and sin and heartache like we do now. That's what this represents. This is what we so desperately need. And maybe, if I'm being honest, me more this morning than anybody else. So I want to pray together. Uh, after prayer, men, if you'll come. And we are going to hand these out. And like I said, just get it, and then I'll give further instructions in a moment. God, we thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this week. We celebrate today Palm Sunday, but we look forward to Easter Sunday, the resurrection. God, I pray that you would help us to honor you with our lives. Help us to remember what you have done for us and what we couldn't do. What Jesus had to endure on that cross, not the pain of the whips or the nails, which those are things that we can think about. We can imagine how bad that must hurt, but God... I don't think we can begin to imagine what it must be like to have your wrath poured out because of the sin of mankind. That's what Jesus endured. That's what Jesus had to go through. God, I'm thankful that he obediently did it because without his obedience, there would be no grace available for me. God, this morning, I don't know, maybe there's people here who who've never trusted in Christ. They're, they're trying to find joy, hope, peace, some other way. God, we know that the only way to have a relationship with you, our Father, is through your Son, Jesus. And so I pray that they would submit to that this morning, that you would open your, their eyes to your truth, that you would save them, that you would do that work you've promised to continue to do. But God, as we partake of this supper this morning, I pray that we would do it in a way that is honorable, in a way that is glorifying to you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want to bow together, ask God to bless this, so if you would join me. God, again, we thank you for the life of Jesus, the perfection of which he lived as a man is something we cannot fathom.
is obedience to you is something we cannot comprehend either. But God, we're thankful that in his flesh, he was able to go all the way to that cross and to die for us. And so God, this morning we try to honor you by partaking of the Lord's Supper, which Jesus established with his disciples on that night. So we ask that you would bless the spread to us now in Jesus' name, amen. She said, take, eat, and do this in remembrance of me. But then it says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow again. Ask God to bless the cup. God, again, we thank you for the blood of Christ, the blood that washes away all of our sin, the blood that establishes a new covenant for us. And God, it's because of that new covenant that we live in grace. We don't have to go to a priest and ask him to go on our behalf to you. No, because of the blood, Jesus has done that. We now can pray to you, our Father, because Christ is our mediator. I no longer have to go to a priest and ask them to sacrifice something for me so my sins can be forgiven. No. I know that as we read in Hebrews, Jesus once and for all gave his life. So that doesn't have to be done year and year and year again, again, again. Once and for all, it was accomplished. So God, we thank you that as you look upon us this morning, your children who you saved, you see the blood of Jesus on us and we receive forgiveness. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. The Bible said, take, drink. This is the blood of the new covenant.